0: Nats Chat is thrilled to partner again with Walters Sports Bar for the 2024 season. Listeners, make sure to walk on over to Walters before and after your visit to Navy
1: Yard. Walters is located across the street from the ballpark. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform Dylan Cruz to right,
0: Casanova watches it go. And
2: Apotaco, 11-2. First pitch to Wood, it's hammered over to right center field. Maricotto races to the warning track over at the wall. He turns and it's over the fence and gone. Solo home run by James Wood breaks the shutout in the fourth inning. That's his 14th home run at double-A, and it gives Harrisburg its first run. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, February 16, 2024, along with MassInsports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in West Palm Beach, Florida, site of 2024 National Spring Training. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast, and we say welcome. Nats spring training. Uh, We on Wednesday had what was the first workout for pitchers and catchers at this year's Nats camp appropriately on Valentine's Day and we this Tuesday will have the first full squad workout of Nats camp. We during Nats camp will be coming to you with regular episodes as we gear up for the 2024 regular season during which we of course do a show for the morning after every Nats game day and we on this installment of the podcast have a lot to talk about Uh, but a few items of business. First of all, we invite you to check out our website, natschatpodcast.com. Click on merch to view our t-shirts. We very much appreciate the support. Also, if you would like to advertise on the podcast, we'd love to have you on board. You can advertise uh, throughout the season or for just certain games or series. Uh, email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. See what we can do for you. Podcast advertising works. Uh, it's very affordable. And we are happy and proud to say that this podcast was a finalist for the Best Baseball Podcast Award from sportspodcastgroup.com. Now, we did not win the award. We have launched an investigation into why we did not win the award. But we do want to sincerely thank everyone who listens and downloads and subscribes and rates and reviews because your support uh, has this podcast among the best baseball podcasts in the country. And we appreciate that. Very much. But Mark, hello. Happy spring training. How is West Palm Beach, Florida? I'm guessing a lot warmer than the uh, Washington, D.C. area is.
0: Well, it is, Al, at the moment, although we had such a warm winter at times that it doesn't feel all that strange for me (laughs) to be down here. I mean, I was out uh, plenty of times this winter at home enjoying the sunshine and playing catch with my son. So it's not like it's that dramatic. But it is always nice to be back here. The sun is shining Literally and figuratively, because I think, while we know the Nationals are not anywhere close to where they ultimately want to get to, there is a different optimism this spring that has not been here in a couple of years. There is some juice, I think, to this camp, because for the first time, you have not just the young guys who we've seen the last year or two in the big leagues, but this next wave, the bigger names, Dylan Cruz, James Wood, Brady House, in the big league clubhouse, along with C.J. Abrams, Caber Ruiz. Cade Cavalli, Mackenzie Gore, all of them. And it does make for a different kind of vibe. And it doesn't mean that at the end of camp, they're going to head north and this is going to be the team. It's going to be a while until that happens. But this spring, we're going to see all those guys together. And it's going to give us, I think, a glimpse into what is coming, and I think what is coming is not that far away. This is something we're going to see before the year is over, I think.
2: I think this is such a big season in the Nats rebuild. We talked about this late last season, but I really feel like this is the season that's going to truly tell us the direction in which this rebuild is going. I think we're going to have a really good sense by the end of this season, is this thing going well Or is it maybe not going so well? I I think we're still kind of in that 50-50 territory. You can look at things glass half full. You can look at things glass half empty. But I think this will be a really telling season. And one thing that is so often true of rebuilds that work is that the breakout a lot of times comes a lot sooner than you think, comes a season or two sooner than anticipated. And so I do wonder if maybe this season could be that season for the Nats. That if things are going really well, maybe this ends up being a season in which the team, say, is in wild card contention for a good chunk of the season. I think about the Orioles season, not last season, but two seasons ago, their 2022 season, in wild card contention for a good chunk of that season. Massive step forward from their 2021 season. Is it possible that we could have that with the Nats in this 2024 season? I I sure hope so. But you mentioned what is. The big item for this Nats campaign, what is kind of the North Star for everyone who is a Nats fan this season, the kids, the prospects, Dylan Cruz, James Wood, Brady House, and others as well. But it was on January 30th that the Nats announced a number of invitations for players to Major League Spring Training. And among those players were many of the organization's top prospects, Cruz, Wood, House, also uh, outfielder Robert Hassel third, infielders Trey Lipscomb and Darren Baker. Now, obviously, we have just had pitchers and catchers working out so far. I know that guys, though, will arrive earlier than they have to at spring training. Are any of the prospects there yet? And uh, what are you anticipating here from these guys in terms of what we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks?
0: Yeah, a whole lot of them are here, way more than I would have thought just across the board and position players. There's only three or four position players who aren't here yet, and we're taping this on, you know, day two of camp. It's only a couple of them who have not reported early. And I think that's really impressive and probably says a lot about what these players uh view the priority here being that, you know, there's optimism, but there's also an understanding of, hey, we need to get to work and show the people who make these decisions that we're serious about trying to make this team better. James Wood is already here. He is a beast to see in person. I mean, he walks around a clubhouse full of big leaguers and some large big leaguers. Let's be clear about: they have some big players already who have big league experience. James Wood dwarfs them all at six foot seven. He is a menacing figure to see. Brady House showed up today. I think back a couple of years ago when they drafted him at age eighteen and he looked like a kid. Well, he's twenty one now and he looks like a legitimate ball player. Now again, he's got a ways to go still, and he's still young and inexperienced, but he didn't look out of place being in that clubhouse with them. Dylan Cruz is not here yet, but I would expect him in the next day or two. Robert Hassel is here already. And yeah, it is something to see. I think it's important. And I think it's important for the others in that clubhouse to see that as well. You've got the guys who've suffered these last couple of years, part of a team that lost more than a hundred games two years ago, a team that made improvements last year, but still was nowhere close to where they wanted to be. And you know, probably feeling like, well, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, here it is. You're seeing it now, the potential for that all to be a part of this in the coming year. And I think it's a little boost of energy for everyone who's in there.
2: There obviously has not been a lot happening uh, with the Nationals this offseason, that is for sure. But we in January did get some of the premier prospect outlets coming out with the outlet's latest top 100 prospects rankings. And, you know, it really does stand out. Dylan Cruz and James Wood universally are regarded as two of, say, the top 15 prospects in all of baseball. Baseball America, Jan 17, top 100 prospects in the sport. Cruz number six, Wood number 11, MLB Pipeline, Jan 26, top 100 prospects in the sport, Cruz number seven, Wood number 14. I mean, it's not hyperbole to talk about these guys as two of the best prospects in baseball. We get that that guarantees nothing, but it really is exciting to think about what these guys could be. I mean, these are guys with superstar potential, not all-star potential, superstar potential. So if you're an ads fan, it's okay to be excited about these guys and see what they can do. Now, you mentioned Brady House, and this I thought was really telling. So House, two years ago, 2022, the back injury, weird season, didn't really do that well. He last year at this time dropped out of these top 100 prospect rankings. Well, he's back in and with some force, Baseball America, number 55 prospect in the sport, MLB Pipeline, number 48 prospect in the sport. So I think that that is instructive from a standpoint of just because a prospect has a bad year and maybe falls out of these rankings doesn't mean that he can't pop in there a year later. And, you know, I, I would inject that into the conversation from a standpoint of guys like Robert Hassel the third and Elijah Green, each guy this year out of these top 100 lists of having been in the top 100 lists a year ago. Neither Hassel nor Green had a good 2023 season. Hassel, in part, because of injury. But look, there are some disturbing stats with what happened with those guys last year. But I was really encouraged to see this with Brady House. And obviously, hopefully, we see something like that uh, with both Hassel and Green this season going into next season.
0: Yeah, it's a reminder how much for these young players, things change year to year. There's not a whole lot of body of work to judge, especially Elijah Green, you know, coming out of high school and now one professional season. So I, I don't think you just write him off because he had a bad year and he fell off the list. Now, he's got things to prove this year, to be sure. But so did Brady House a year ago. And he did prove it and has put himself back in that mix. And I think it does show that there is the opportunity for guys to take step forwards. Now, we also know there's an opportunity for guys to take a step backwards. And you hope that's not the case. I mean, We're talking about legitimate all-star prospects, like you said. But they haven't done it at the big league level yet. They haven't even done it at AAA yet. So, there are still steps to take. There's no guarantees here. I feel, though, like Dylan Cruz is the most surefire prospect they've had here since at least Anthony Rendon and maybe Bryce Harper. You know, I mean, that's the category of prospect that he is coming from such a big time college program at LSU, dominating it in every way possible, and doing a good job in his first minor league season. I know he's struggled a little bit after he got moved up to A, but that was a long year for him with a bunch of promotions and was in Double A long before almost anyone else would have been. So is he big league ready today? No, but he's not going to be far off. And with him, I think it's just a matter of time and some experience before he bursts onto the scene. And I'm sure he's going to have a moment or two this spring that everybody stops and says, oh, wow, this guy is legit. And I think James Wood, a slight notch below that as far as being a sure thing or not, but he's high up there. And this is several years in a row, even going back to when he was with the Padres, that James Wood has been considered a top prospect. And he's also now on the cusp of it. So I think those are the two to really watch. House a little further away, obviously younger, needs some more experience. But these are, you know, as much attention as we've given the last couple of years to CJ Abrams, Mackenzie Gore, Josiah Gray, Kabert Ruiz, and and they all can and should be a part of what this team is trying to build for the future. They're not in the same class as these others we're talking about now. These three guys are a step up from them, certainly Cruz and Wood are, and when they get here, if everything works out the way that you think they should, they should be the faces of the team, the stars of the team above people like Ruiz and Gray and Gore and Abrams who for better or worse, have kind of had to wear that responsibility of being the young face of the organization. There's more coming. And maybe now within the next year, they're going to be allowed to move down a slot to where they probably should be considered in the hierarchy.
2: A lot of things matter with the Nats 2024 season, but nothing matters more, at least on the field, than what happens with Dylan Cruz and James Wood, and to a lesser extent, Brady House. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Uh yes, national spring training has started, but we are still in February. It is still winter and it is still cold. Your energy bills remain high. Now is the time to replace your old leaky windows because Window Nation is offering a great deal to listeners of the Nat Chat Podcast. off all styles of window, and you pay nothing with zero interest for two full years. Yes, deferred payments that would make even the learners envious. Uh, Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation can install your new windows in a day or less, and Window Nation windows come with a lifetime warranty. Upgrade the look, feel, and value of your home with new and great windows from Window Nation and take advantage of this deal being offered to listeners of the Natch Chat Podcast. 50% off all styles of window and you pay nothing with zero interest for two full years. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent ya. Three men to the right, one to the left of the infield in Strasburg. Comes set, here's the pitch. Change up, swing and a miss. He strikes out the side. Breaking out the change up in the bottom of the second inning. A 1-2-3 bottom of the second for Steven Strasburg. Well, the positives with the Nats right now are the prospects, but hovering over the Nats still is this Steven Strasburg cloud. And boy, it is amazing that we are still where we are, although I guess in some ways, maybe it isn't so amazing. So as you may recall, it was last August, August 24th, that we had multiple reports that Steven Strasburg had decided to retire. He's not pitching again. That has been made crystal clear by people like Mark. And you know, if you're just kind of following this, even if you're not like in the know, it's Very obvious he's done as a major league pitcher. So August 24th, the reports that Strasburg has decided to retire. September 7th, reports that a press conference for his retirement had been called off because the Nats and Strasburg's camp were still working out what to do with the remainder of that big money contract. So that's where we left off. And there was kind of a hope, maybe even an assumption of, hey, many months to come. The offseason is long. They can figure this out in the offseason. Well, they haven't figured this out, and we are now dancing an absurd dance as national spring training has begun. Nats president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo spoke to Mark and other reporters on Wednesday. Rizzo said that the Nats expect Strasburg to show up at Nats spring training, despite, again, everyone knowing that his career is over. Now, Mike made it clear to you guys that the anticipation, the expectation is not for Strasburg to pitch in camp, but the expectation is for him to show up. Mark wrote a really good piece about this on MassinSports.com. but there's a key date here, February 24th. That is the date per the CBA between MLB and the MLBPA. That is the mandatory reporting date for all players invited to a team's major league spring training. If you don't report by that date and you don't have an excused absence, you are subject to discipline. Strasburg has basically been, you know, a recluse since he got injured. I mean, he he almost never shows up. You certainly never hear from the guy. What is going to happen here? I mean, this is something, man, that we're still talking about this. But, you know, there's the contract and all of that. But Feb 24 isn't that far away. Is he going to show up? What do we think?
0: I honestly don't know the answer to that right now, Al. I would say on February 24th, which happens to be the, the first day of the Grapefruit League season, by the way, I would say you might as well show up and see what happens at the ballpark that day because who knows, he might be there, he might not. I have a hard time believing that Steven Strasburg is all of a sudden going to show up at spring training, particularly for what it is that they are looking for from him. Let's be clear, Mike Rizzo is not saying he is supposed to come here and participate in any kind of rehab or attempts to get himself in shape to pitch. They know that, they acknowledge that, that it's not gonna happen but he is still a part of the roster. He's been on the 40-man roster all winter. They are allowed now that spring training has started to put guys on the 60-day IL and clear up a spot on the 40-man. and That may happen at some point. They didn't do it automatically on day one just because there's no need yet. It would be a move they would make in conjunction with, say, a free agent signing if they are to do that or maybe later in camp when a non-roster player makes the team and they need to open up a spot for him, that's when they would do it. But he is technically on the 40-man roster and part of the team still. And by the letter of the law, as far as the CBA is concerned, that means you are required to still participate, whether it's trying to rehab or you know continuing to perform to fulfill your end of the contract. Now, all winter long, I kept thinking to myself, is it really going to come to this? Are they going to try to say, hey, Steven, you got to come to spring training? Let's be clear, he did not come last year. He stayed in DC. Now, he was still rehabbing at that point with the some hope of, of coming back. This year, that's not the case anymore. I truly don't know the answer to the question of what happens if he doesn't show up. Do the Nationals actually have legal grounds here to try to say, well, you're in violation of your contract and now you don't get some or all of what you're still owed? That seems to be the threat that they're making. I don't know how legitimate or how idle that threat is. I don't know if Steven Strasberg and his agent Scott Morris are going to take the bait. So there's a lot of unanswered stuff there. And it's going to be awkward if he does come. And I feel for the guy because if he does show up, he's all of a sudden the center of attention. You can't do this and mentor the guys that not be seen. He has a locker in the clubhouse, still has all his equipment in it. Looks like it hasn't been touched in over a year, but it's there. You know, we're here. We're going to immediately want to talk to him and find out what's going on with him. It's an uncomfortable situation for anyone, let alone someone who's not the most comfortable being in the public eye like Steven Strasberg has always been. So I feel for him. But to me, it's just really, really sad and kind of embarrassing for everyone that it has come to this. The relationship between him and the organization, at least on the ownership level, is not good And this is a franchise icon. And Rizzo does his part to try to say all that and and talk him up and, and explain his importance. And yeah, in a perfect world, Steven Strasburg should be here mentoring young guys, just like Sean Doolittle is now, like Ryan Zimmerman will be when he comes down for a few days. But the manner in which this would go down, or potentially, it's so awkward, and it never should have come to this. And yet, here we are.
2: Yeah. One of the things I remember saying to you last year about this was, well, the last thing that you want is for this thing to get ugly. Uh, Well, too late. This thing has gotten ugly. And this now is getting embarrassing. And You know, I guess on the one hand, you could say, hey, if you're going to have a situation like this, now is the time to have this situation. The Nats are flying under the radar like they haven't in years. I mean, that's just the truth right now. And there aren't a lot of people paying attention to this. And so I guess if you're going to have this, have it happen now. There's also the thing of, you know, the learners may not own the team, you know, beyond this season. So I guess you could say, hey, you know, who cares how they end up looking if they're on their way out of here? But of course, what if they're not on their way out of here? We still have so many questions about this Nationals ownership situation, I would ask this. So Mike Rizzo did talk about the mentoring angle and hey, you know, Strasburg can be here and helping out young players. So what about that? Like, we understand he can't pitch anymore, but it is true he's still getting paid and he's getting paid a lot of money. Is there merit to the argument of, yeah, you feel bad about what happened. We feel bad about what happened, but we're still paying you. Get over it and come, you know, earn some of your money here and help out your teammates. Is that an unreasonable stance? Do you think that Mike Rizzo has that stance that, you know, maybe he's sympathetic to the injury, but also says, hey, Strauss, we are paying you many millions of dollars. You could be here and try to do a little something for us, you know, as, as we try to get this rebuild where we want it to be.
0: Yeah, I think there is merit in it on an emotional level. And and just, you know good faith level. <laughs> that, and, and I think, take the contract out of the equation. If Strasburg's career had just ended because of injury and he retired in a normal fashion, I think there's a decent chance he would come down here, not for the whole spring, but for a few days, and kind of like Zimmerman does. And I think he would be able to find value in helping other pitchers out. The problem is the nature of this, and none of us knows without having read the specifics of his contract. I've tried to read through the CBA some, but it, it's a bit of a cumbersome project to try to read through that whole document and understand all the uh, you know various subsections of how these things work. But within his own contract, I don't know what it says as far as what he's required to do or not required to do. What they're essentially asking him to do, I don't think would be in a standard player contract. Come be a mentor or pseudo coach while you're still under contract as a player. That's not normal. That's not something you would normally include in any kind of contract. So from a legal standpoint, I could see why he or Scott Boris would say, well, I'm under no obligation to do that. I can't pitch anymore. Doctors say I can't pitch anymore. You concede I can't pitch anymore. And I understand that you're still paying me all this money and want me to, you know, at least be doing something for the organization. But he's not contractually bound to do that is my guess. And that'll be the argument to it if it comes to that. But on just a human level, sure, I think there is some valid thinking behind it. And if the relationship was good and if the retirement had gone on in a normal way, you would like to think that he would want to still be a part of the organization and have some kind of impact.
2: It's not a perfect comp. But we did have an at least somewhat similar situation years ago between Prince Fielder and the Texas Rangers. And that situation did not get anywhere near as ugly as this situation has gotten. And you have to wonder why. You know, you have to say to yourself, boy, couldn't the ugliness here have been avoided, especially with all of the time that has passed? I mean, it's not like this is some rush job. The team and Strasbourg have had months to figure this out and still have not figure this out. And uh, yet here we are. And so I guess we'll see February 24th. Get your popcorn ready and uh, we'll see what ends up going down here. Uh, if you're keeping track, uh, this would be Strasburg's age 35 season and season number five of the 70 or 245 million dollar contract to which it was re-signed in December 2019. You know, there's also a part of me that says this. The contract is a big L. It's guaranteed money. If you're the learner's You just got to take the L. Like, it's unfortunate what happened. It's one of the worst contracts in the history of sports. But, you know, the learners didn't take out the insurance on the contract. There's not much you can do about it. So just move on here. And I I wonder if the thinking from ownership is we're going to pay as little as possible for as long as possible. And that if we sell the team, then the next ownership can handle this thing. Do you think that it's as simple as that, that the learners are just trying to kick the can down the road for the possibility of selling the team? And maybe the next ownership has to deal with this Strasbourg
0: contract. It could be, but let's remember so much of his contract already is deferred (laughs) because that's the way it was structured all along. And, And let me also be clear, and I mentioned this, I think over the winter, when we first started talking about this, when we say ownership, My understanding is it's not uniform across the entire ownership group that the issues are confined to a portion of the ownership group. And so there may even be dissension among members of the Learner family about how they want to proceed with this.
2: Yeah, uh, that is another aspect to all of this for sure.
1: We're driven by the search for better.
2: High and deep to right, it's not coming back.
0: Joey Gallo with a pair of extra base hits, and the Twins take a 3-1 lead.
2: Well, we had this 2023-2024 Nationals offseason, and we've joked about this, but it is true. It may well go down as the quietest Nationals offseason since the franchise came to D.C. in the 2004 2005 offseason. I mean, if you are summarizing the Nationals offseason in terms of moves, okay. So you did have the revamping of baseball operations, and that's a big deal. Okay. So like, it's not like zero happened in the offseason, but in terms of player acquisitions, right? Player signings, player trades, Joey Gallo, Nick Senzel, Dylan Floro. That's about it in terms of the offseason. That's have signed a bunch of guys to minor league contracts. If you're watching any national spring training games and you see someone, you say to yourself, Boy, where did he come from? Chances are it is a minor league contract. But that really ended up being it. I mean, Nick Senzel, Joey Gallo, Dylan Floro, you know, Juan Yepes, if you want to throw him into the mix. But man, there just was not a lot happening. This actually is the first show that we've done since the Nats signed Joey Gallo, a free agent outfielder slash first baseman. It is a a one-year contract with a mutual option for 2025. The Nats in their press release did label Gallo an outfielder. And boy, is this guy an interesting study from a statistical standpoint. The classic three true outcome batter. Joey Gallo's ability to hit home runs is supremely legit. He does draw walks and he does strike out a ton. And it's about as simple as that. I mean, Gallo's 2023 regular season with the Minnesota Twins, 21 home runs, but a batting average of just 177. He actually had more homers than singles. If you could believe that, 21 homers versus just 19 singles. He did draw 48 walks. He also struck out 142 times. Now, he can play the field, but he in so many ways is like the exact opposite of the 2023 Nats, right? The 2023 Nats could get on base, could generate singles, but never hit home runs, uh, rarely struck out, but weren't very good defensively. Well, Joey Gallo, good defensively, strikes out a lot, draws walks, And hits home runs. So, I guess in that regard, the signing does make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, it fills a very specific need that they had last year that they want to be better at this year. They want to be able to drive in more runs in bunches, hit for power, and yeah, draw more walks. It is also about that, you know, as well. I mean, last year, it's basically two thirds of his plate appearances ended in either a home run, a walk, or a strikeout. 66% of them were those three true outcomes. When he puts the ball in play, It's a home run or it's an out. It's crazy how that has gone for him. Now, he talked about with us, this is not necessarily the full extreme. He doesn't want to be this extreme in that regard. He does want to make more contact. He wants to hit more singles. He wants to look to go to the opposite field and center field a little bit more and not be just a dead pull hitter. It's something over the course of his career he's tried to do at times with some success at times and not so much at others. He admits it can get in his head. Every once in a while, and now you try to do too much and you're getting out of your comfort zone. So it is something for him to work on. I guess I will say his hitting coach now is the master of just make contact in Darnell Coles. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. We're going to have to see how it works out. But for $5 million, I think this is the kind of move you make if you're the Nationals. This is a short-term thing. You know you have outfielders coming. We just talked about them in Cruz and Wood. Get what you can from Joey Gallo for four months. Hope he hits 20, 25 homers, draws some walks, gets on base at a decent rate, plays a good left field. This is a two-time gold glove winning outfielder. So he's not Adam Dunn. He's like Adam Dunn in a lot of ways. He's not Adam Dunn in the field. He's actually a positive in the field for you. You do all that and hope you can flip him now at the deadline and get something for him just in time for James Wood or Dylan Cruz to take over that spot. I think it's low risk. I think it's worth it. He's going to infuriate you. There are going to be at-bats, he comes up with a guy on third base and saying, just make contact and get the runner in and he's going to strike out and it's going to be agonizing. Do you know, Al, how many sacrifice flies Joey Gallo has in his career? Over 3,100 plate appearances. How many sacrifice flies does Joey Gallo have?
2: I'm guessing not a ton.
0: Three. Ha! Three. That tells you everything you need to know right there. He hits the ball in the air, but it's going to go out of the park. If he makes contact, it's not just going to be a flyout, And that is something he's going to have to, in theory, be better at. But don't count on him just getting that runner home from third unless it's a home run. So he's going to be frustrating at times, but I do think he's going to provide them with something that they sorely need.
2: He's a guy who, for a while, was a really good batter. I mean, Joey Gallo, over a stretch of five regular seasons, 2017 through 2021, OPS Plus of 117. This is a guy, 2017 through 2023 regular seasons, number three among all qualified batters in the majors in at-bats per home run, 13.16. So if he gets hot, you'd like to think he could get really hot. And to your point flip him. I mean, this is a classic guy who all you need him to do is hit well for a few months and then trade him. You know, And it's as simple as that. This is not some long-term relationship that we're entering into here with Joey Gallo. This is a uh, spring slash summer fling, and then it's uh, see you later.
0: Yeah. Think about it this way. A year ago at this time, this was Corey Dickerson that they were hoping to do this with. Dickerson, not nearly the hitter, potential hitter that Joey Gallo is. So I think this is a step up from that. But I, I do think you see a pattern here The guys they did bring in, they didn't spend much, we know. It was 9.2 million total spent on free agents this winter. That's nothing. But the guys they brought in, Gallo, Nick Senzel, Dylan Floro, reliever, and Jesse Winker, who they just signed this week to a minor league deal and probably looks like a good candidate to be their DH or at least part of their DH combo entering the season. These are guys who have had success in the big leagues but are coming off of down years. So they were able to get them at much lesser salary numbers or even, in Winker's case, on a non-roster deal, and then you hope that you get them rejuvenated. Not going to happen for all of them, but you hope a few of them do that, and then you have the ability to move them at the deadline. Last year, they got one of them right in Jamer Candelario. The others, Dom Smith, Corey Dickerson, didn't work out. You're hoping this year that maybe two of these, at least, will be that for you and can be moved at the deadline.
2: So, the Nats are not spending money. We know that. I'm actually one of these people who doesn't think that the Nats have to be or even necessarily should be spending money. I think that conversation has been a little overrated, but I am intrigued by this. So, there still are some significant free agents out there. As a side note, you could argue MLB free agency is broken. This is not good for the sport that these big names linger in free agency like this well into February. It's not a good look for the players, it's not a good look for the sport. But anyway, Cody Bellinger, still a free agent. Blake Snell, still a free agent. Matt Chapman, still a free agent. We get it. The Nats are not at least planning on contending this season. We get it. The Nats are not spending big money right now. But at some point, do the price points for these premier free agents not come down enough to where it might make sense for the Nats to sign one of these guys to a one-year prove-it contract, pay the guy a bunch of money, and then you hopefully flip that guy come the trade deadline. I mean, I think there's merit to that argument. Whether the Nats would be willing to do this, who the heck knows. But what do you think about that? A Bellinger, a Chapman, a Snell for the Nats in the 2024 season for the purpose of the guy excelling and then the Nats trading that guy? Do you think there's any chance we see that?
0: I don't think it would be one of those kind of guys unless they become so desperate to take a one-year deal. And my guess is that they're holding out hope that they're going to get a much longer-term deal. Than that. But I have been told by more than one person with the organization since coming down here that they are actively looking at more players. Like they're not just saying, this is our roster now. They know how many free agents are still available. These are quality big leaguers, not even that top group, but go down another level or two. There are still quality big league players who have not signed yet. And the Nationals are absolutely interested in a number of them. It just boils down to whatever they think that player is worth or what they're willing to spend. And ultimately, whenever that player and their agents decide, okay, I need a job. I can't hold out any longer. I've got to take whatever's available to me at this point. Now, Rizzo did say specifically to pitchers, we went into the offseason, they said, we want to add a starting pitcher. They did not do that. And he admitted to us that while they may still look to do something, it's probably not going to be a major league deal for anyone. So that kind of tells you the kind of pitcher they'd be looking at, which may not even be somebody good enough to bump Trevor Williams, say, from the rotation. Now, again, maybe the prices come way down and there is somebody who's willing to come here on a short-term you know, deal It's not that much money. But I don't think we've seen the end of their moves for the offseason. We'll, we're going to see something over the course of spring training. But I'd be very surprised if it was one of those bigger names you talked about. And I'd also be surprised at this point if it's a starting pitcher of real consequence.
2: Well, one of the things that we do usually get on the first day or two of a national spring training is some sort of reveal, right? Because we haven't heard from Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo much, if at all, you know, in in the weeks leading up to spring training. And so many times something will be said that nobody had any idea about. We talked Strasburg earlier in the show. You may recall this. It was last year on the day of the first workout for pitchers and catchers that Davey Martinez revealed that Strasburg had been shut down due to a recurrence of nerve pain. Well, I guess you could label this year's injury surprise early in spring training this Mason Thompson news. And, you know, I guess you could say it's not a a surprise because Mason, unfortunately, has dealt with a lot in the way of injury. But boy, this does not sound encouraging. Elbow discomfort while throwing an offseason bullpen session. He has been shut down. Uh, and he'll be reevaluated. So we'll see. But, you know, substantial injury history, of course. Uh, You know, I'd like to paint a rosy picture with this. I don't know how you have a lot of optimism, but uh, what do we know about where Mason Thompson is at?
0: No, I I don't think people should view this very optimistically. And just looking in Mason's eyes as he was talking to us about this, you could see that he deep down has some concerns. He's not going to come right out and say what he fears it is, but I think he knows what the potential Uh, worst-case scenario of this is. So about two weeks ago, he's in Texas. He's been building up his arm. He talked about this was a big winner for him to really show the Nationals he can be more consistent. He had such a wildly erratic year last year. There were times that he looked as good as any reliever in baseball, and then there were times that he looked awful. And so he really did work on some mechanical changes and other things and was feeling good about it. And then he said he was facing live hitters, something that he normally does a couple weeks before camp starts. And he threw a pitch and his elbow didn't feel right. Now, this is somebody who had Tommy John surgery way back when he was in high school as a junior. Uh, I think it was 2016. And so he knows what that feels like. Now, he didn't come out and say this felt the same, but he did admit that this was not just normal elbow soreness. So they shut him down for two weeks. They'll reevaluate after that. I don't want to make people think there's no hope of this turning out to be okay But I think there's genuine concern here that he has another major elbow injury, which will cost him. And, you know, they have the bullpen depth. They really went out and I think have gotten themselves four experienced late inning relievers now, I think, at this point, to the point where somebody like Mason Thompson is maybe an extra arm. But you know over the course of the season you're going to need as many as you can. And Thompson does have the kind of arm and the kind of stuff, as we've seen, that can be really effective when he gets it all together in unison. Unfortunately, both because of performance and injuries, he hasn't had that. And it would seem like right now, certainly his chances of making the opening day roster are very slim, and there's probably a decent chance we're not going to be seeing him for a long time. A
2: couple of other gnats on the mend. Uh, Cade Cavalli, he uh, spent all of last season on the 60-day injured list due to Tommy John surgery that He underwent in March 2023. Uh, We talked about his recovery as last season went on. I don't think anyone was ever anticipating him being ready for opening day this year. But uh, May, June, is that kind of still what people are thinking with Cade?
0: Yeah, they're being a little more cautious about saying an exact date or month right now. Cade's the one who told us June at the end of last season. I think that still sounds like the target area. That's like 14, 15 months removed from it. He's throwing bullpens. He started doing that this week. He's not going to be pitching in games down here, maybe at the very end of camp, but I I don't get the sense that he's going to be quite there yet. So he'll stay down here for extended spring training, face hitters then. Then they'll send him eventually on a minor league rehab assignment. You know, he can take up to a month doing that before they then promote him to the big leagues. But by all accounts, he is on schedule. There's not setbacks here. I think the key to all this is them understanding that once Cade is ready to pitch in the big leagues. They want him to be available for them the rest of the season. They don't want to be dealing with a shutdown. They don't want to have to skip starts out of a you know abundance of caution. So if it means holding him to June or maybe even July just to make sure that he's good the rest of the way, I think that's what they're going to do. He is vitally important to what they're trying to do right now. Yeah, they want to see some results from him and, and get a sense of, hey, is this guy really a frontline starter like we've always believed he would be? But more than that, they got to get him into the big leagues and healthy for as long as he's available to them this year. And then you start worrying more about the results, I think, next year.
2: And then Stone Garrett, uh, who suffered that hideous looking injury last summer, a uh, fractured left fibula. The Nats then kind of sort of revealed that he also had some work done on his left ankle. That was said by Davey Martinez in a pregame session uh, with reporters last August 28th. So at the very least, fractured fibula, maybe, you know, a broken ankle or a dislocated ankle. I mean, that, that was one of the nastiest injuries you'll ever see. I thought it was interesting, though, when the Nats came out with those new unis, Stone Garrett was the one modeling the Unis. Now, maybe it's just because he's all jacked up, but maybe it's because the Nats are anticipating him being back sooner rather than later. But uh, how is Stone Garrett doing?
0: He's here. He looks good. He's participating with everybody else. Now, it's not officially position player camp yet. He's just here with the early reporting guys, but he took batting practice. I mean, he's running around. He looks great. I think they don't want to rule out the possibility of opening day because they'd like for him to have that in his mind as a goal. If you can do it, go for it. But they're going to be watching him very carefully. And I think the key here, he can hit a baseball now. He can run. But you need to see how he does in game situations and then how he does the next day. You know, these are not things that are so easily you make it all the way back from with no lingering concerns. You know, your body has to get used to doing this again. I mean, everything seems to be going very well there. And there's a chance that he is on the opening day roster. But they're not going to force that issue if they think he needs a little more time. They want to see how he runs the bases, how he handles the field, and just playing in games and the rigors of that. So I'll be curious to see once we get to that point how he looks. But I, I do think they've set it up well now. You know, all winter long we kept saying, well, it looks like they don't have anyone else. Stone Garrett kind of needs to be in the lineup. I think the Gallo signing. He's pretty much your left fielder with some time at first base. I think Joey Manessis is at first base now. And when you have Jesse Winker, a left-handed batter, and Stone Garrett, a right-handed batter, that makes for a decent DH platoon. And I could see that being a way to help Stone get back into it without the rigors of playing the field every day. If he's good enough to DH every other day, something like that, and pinch it, and maybe play the field a little bit, I could see them being willing to put him on the roster for those purposes.
2: All right. One more thing. And we alluded to this earlier in talking about the ownership uncertainty with the Nats. Ownership uncertainty that is reaching a two-year mark. April of this year will mark two years since we learned uh, that the Nats were for sale. And remember, that's when we learned. We learned in April 2022. It may be that the Nats have been on the market even before April 2022. But we can't do this show and not at least mention The mammoth news that broke on January 30th and then was officially announced the next day. The Orioles are being sold. The Angelos family has agreed to sell the Orioles to a group being led by two private equity billionaires, David Rubenstein and Michael Arregetti. The sale price is $1.725 billion. There is so much to this, certainly from the standpoint of the Masson dispute. But I'd like to get your take on this, because from a Nats perspective, there's the Masson angle, but I think there's also this angle. So with the sale of the Nats, and you brought up a real key point, which is the Learners, right, plural, it's not just Mark Lerner, it's a bunch of other people too. They're individuals, they're not necessarily all on the same page regarding whether to sell the ball club. But the Orioles sell price, $1.725 billion. That brought me back to what the Washington Post reported April 19th of last year that Ted Leonsis late in 2022, quote, offered more than $2 billion, end quote, to buy the Nats. The report said it was not clear whether the learners rejected the offer or simply did not respond to the offer. But what is clear is that the learners did not accept the offer. Now, Washington, D.C. is a bigger market than Baltimore is. They are two separate markets for those who ever want to contend that they're not. They are. So D.C., bigger market, D.C., more lucrative market, the Nats uh, are more valuable than the Orioles are? But I would wonder this: if the O's are being sold for 1.725 billion and the learners turn down 2 billion plus, let's call it 2.1 billion from TED, what exactly do you want if you're the learners here? You know, like I mean, you may want 5 half, 2.6 billion for the Nats, but if the O's are going for $1.725, how realistic is it that you're gonna get $2.5, 2600000000 And so you know, if the learners are trying to sell the Nats, I wonder if they're going to have to swallow the reality of they're not going to get what they want for the Nats. And I know the learners are, you know, notorious for grinding out deals. And that's part of why they've been so successful financially. But like, you know, you can't just name your price. Like you have to be realistic about stuff. I thought that that sale price for the O's was telling and uh, maybe says something to the learners about what they should be expecting for the Nats.
0: Well, the reaction around baseball to that sale price was a little bit of a surprise that they thought it was low, most people in the sport. And let's also remember this, and I can only get into so much as far as Masson is concerned, but that sale price includes Masson or a majority of Masson. You're not just buying the Orioles, you get the majority ownership of the TV network. And then we'll see what David Rubenstein ultimately does with that network. So. That, in theory, should mean that the Orioles are worth, as a team, even less than the 1.75. And when you purchase the Nationals, if you purchase the Nationals, you get a stake in Masson, but you don't get nearly as much as you do when you buy the Orioles. So I think it's becoming uh, more and more clear that the learners are not going to necessarily get what they think this franchise is worth, at least not in its current state. Now, you made this point, and I've been saying this all along. We know how that family operates in all their businesses. They decide something's worth something and they are willing to hold out for it. They do not usually relent and just give in on it. And so my sense would be that even if deep down they know we're not getting what we're asking for, well, if that's the case, then we're going to hold on to it. And we're not just going to sell for the sake of it unless they are so desperate to sell. And I don't think they are, at least they certainly all aren't on the same page as just being desperate to sell the team. Now, everybody, believe me, I got the question from so many people. I had the same questions myself when the Orioles' sale news broke, like what does this mean for the Nationals? And there's been a lot of speculation. A lot of people think they want to know what it means for the Nationals. I don't think it's possible to know what it actually means for them yet because we don't really know yet what David Rubenstein's intentions are, what his plan is for everything, and what the domino effect of all that is. These are complicated situations as we've known all along. I think the short answer to this is the learners own the nationals. I don't think that's going to change in the immediate future. I think if they are determined to increase the value of the franchise, how do you do that? What's the best way to do that? If the market is telling them the franchise is not worth what they think it's worth, what's the best way to up that value? Have a more successful franchise that makes more money. How do you do that? Draw more fans. How do you do that? Have a better team on the field. You know, I think it comes down to that. And I think this year is fascinating for that reason. And then their approach to next offseason, I think, is fascinating in that regard as well. If you really want to boost the value of your franchise, you've got to start having a winning team again that people want to spend money to come see. And yes, the TV deal is also a huge part of that. But independent of that, the things you can control are the product you're putting out there on the field. For the last couple of years, it has been a subpar product. It's time for that to start changing. And this year, I think, is going to go a long way towards determining where they're headed in that direction.
2: Yeah, it's worth noting the sale of the O's has been agreed to. It has not been approved by MLB. I actually had Jeff Barker of the Baltimore Sun on my podcast a few weeks ago. Jeff done a really good job covering the Orioles from a business perspective. He's covered the in dispute for years. He said he's been told about two months and uh, this sale should be approved. So, you know, the sale's got to get approved and then you kind of go from there. But I think from a Nats perspective, this is good news. How good to be determined but I don't think this is bad news like, I think this is good news this is something we've talked about I think it helps the Nats uh, but you know how much does it help does it lead to the Nats ultimately being sold which I think is something that uh, would be good we'll see we, you know, we just don't know uh, at this time well there is a lot to come with the Nats this season there is a lot to come from this podcast and we thank you so much for listening uh, you can always reach us uh, via x at Nats underscore chat you can email the show Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. And again, we invite you to check out our website, NatsChatPodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on NatsChat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Chat Podcast music. Visit TimNewmark.com. We'll be back with you soon with the next installment of the Chat Podcast. Until then, for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time on the NatsChat Podcast.